Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode, I sat down with Julian Vane. Uh, Julian was introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours, um, and it was a really beautiful conversation. Uh, Julian does a lot of work uh, working with entheogenic plants, uh, with uh, studying the history of occultism and esoteric traditions, uh, a lot of European shamanism. He studied kind of shamanic paths from around the world. And he has a really beautiful way of, of expressing these ideas, putting these things together, uh, speaking about the history of, of a lot of these traditions, how they intermix. And uh, for me, it was a really beautiful conversation of, of someone who I think carries a lot of wisdom and, and has a, a really wonderful way of, of uh, being able to communicate sometimes complex ideas into things that are very understandable and, and, and feasible and tangible. So uh, it was really a pleasure. We, we got into the roots of uh, European shamanism, uh, ideas of the differences between individual versus collective uh, journeys, um, just kind of how this work is beginning to develop and shape and where it's going. So uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I think uh, everyone listening will get a lot out of it and uh, and really enjoy it. So thank you guys for tuning in. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, if you're able to support it, uh, that's a really big help to me uh, to continue to bring on these guests. Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service uh, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can donate and uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for and it gives you really nice added benefits things like early access to these shows um, bonus materials a chance to ask Q&A's um, so kind of working with this idea of reciprocity of giving and receiving something back so that's a really big support to all the people who are patrons members of Patreon thank you very much I, I really uh, appreciate all the help um, there's also the ability to donate directly via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube channel and subscribing to the show, that's a really big help, turning on the notification bell, uh, liking the video. It may seem like a simple thing, but that's really big with algorithms and helping to get the show uh, seen more and get it out to a bigger and broader audience. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts and similarly subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. Uh, so if you have done that, thank you very much. And if you can do that, thank you in advance. Uh, so I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Julius. Running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Cool, Julian. Well, welcome to the show. Um, <clears throat> it's nice having you. We we were introduced through a mutual friend of ours, Luis, and. Um, I, I would imagine a, a, a portion of the audience is, has probably heard of you. They, they may even be familiar with your work. But for those who, who haven't heard of you before, um, I know it's always a big question. Who are you? But uh, what, is, what is a bit of your background and, and how did you get interested in this work? Because the, the work you do is very unique. I mean, in, in, the, in the world at large, it's, it's kind of a, 
especially these days, a bit of a niche work. And yet, interestingly, it's uh, I think the the work you're pointing towards is actually at the at the root of a lot of civilization and a lot of philosophy and spiritual thought. Thank you very much, Jason, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's most appreciated. Who am I? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I mean, I'm just a guy. I'm just like a white working class dude from uh, near the home counties in London. I'm 52 years of age. Um, I My day job is that I work in as a consultant in museums and galleries and heritage environments. Um, but my uh, as, as, but aside of the kind of the Clark Kent thing, uh, what I also do is that I'm an occultist and I'm a writer. So in brief, um, I started off uh, as quite a young man uh, uh, getting involved in Wicca. So the kind of like uh, modern uh, reimagining, let's call it, of, uh, of, of, uh, of um, a species of um, uh, paganism. Uh, got involved in kind of Wicca, ceremonial magic, kind of the Western magical tradition is kind of where I come from. And I remember as a kid kind of growing up, looking at all these books about like different magical cultures and stuff. And there was a, cl a, cl um, a group of people who I was told in these books were called shaman or shaman. You know, I say Rome, you say Roma, tomato, tomato, whatever. And I looked at these dudes and I thought, well, I can't possibly be one of them because my skin is too pale. And because uh, I come from an island where these people appear not to be. So... Um, uh having said that over the years i've had an opportunity to work with people from communities that have let's call it like ethnic lineages yeah so people from the americas in particular but also from india and so on um and my practice these days um really kind of aspires to bring together the stuff i've learned in the the kind of western esoteric tradition with the things that i understand as being um, in the broadest sense of the term, shamanism. I mean, it's a very contested and difficult word, and we I'm sure that many of the people listening to this podcast will be very aware, you know, from the Siberian Tungus people, it's then kind of generalised as this ethnographic envelope for stuff that Europeans look at and kind of go, well, oh, that looks a little bit like this thing over here. They must be basically the same. There's a lot of debate about that. But my um, practice now, um, I guess, blends together the sort of Western esoteric stuff with um the shamanism particularly the shamanism that we might associate with uh, entheogens or with psychedelics um so uh i also kind of sit on the board of an uh, an, a peer-reviewed academic journal and i'm involved uh, about psychedelics and i'm also involved in a thing called breaking convention big psychedelics conference happens every couple of years in london not this year we're postponing it to next year for obvious reasons um and, you know, I've been a research participant in psilocybin trials in London um, and have worked with a number of, I guess, what these days we would call sacred medicines for, for quite some time. And I guess that perhaps people listening to this podcast might probably know, if they know of any of the written stuff that I produce, they probably know a book called Getting Higher. So Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony, which I think came out in 2017, which is my uh, um, uh, attempt to kind of... Um, present a repertoire of kind of techniques and ideas about how people might work with these magical medicines you know uh, like my people like myself who perhaps aren't born into an environment where they have like a lineage or maybe elders that they can speak with so what i attempted to do in that uh, that text was to grab together all the stuff that i'd learned to pay respect to the people who i'd learned it from as far as i was able and to represent that in a way that um i like to think would be accessible for uh, yeah, people who are coming to this who perhaps 
aren't able for one reason or another to kind of lock into a tradition of practice, whether that's like a quote indigenous tradition by kind of traveling or being in space or where those things are available or uh, perhaps not even having like older friends who can say, you know, this is how many mushrooms you want. This is the environment you want to be in, blah, blah, blah. Um, many of these substances are available for people to people in a variety of different ways. Um, uh, uh, some of them good, some of them not so good. But people have access to these magical substances. And so my uh, hope was to pre present a text which would enable people to do that in their own way. So in the same way that I've had to kind of piece together the tradition, if you like, that I inhabit, um, I guess lots of other people are in the same situation. And so uh, Getting High was was uh, a, an opportunity to try and present some of this material in a way that hopefully is yeah, accessible and engaging to, to those kind of folk. Yeah. Does that answer that okay, Jason? Is that is that is that enough? <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Um something I find interesting that, that I, I've heard you mention is um I remember when I was younger, I was very interested in shamanism, but but as you were saying, it seemed like something very foreign. It was these these strange costumes and these people in faraway lands living in a very different culture. And, and I found myself, and, and I, I didn't correlate it until much later, but I found myself really drawn to, to going out, to going clubbing, to dancing, to even being under the influence of alcohol. And there was something in, in kind of that altered state of consciousness, being around other people in that similar kind of frequency under the effects of alcohol. Some people may have been using ecstasy, things like that, but there was something very freeing in that. And, and it was, I think it was the first time where probably outside of being a child, where we're kind of just operating in this space more or less on a regular basis. And then we begin to move away from that. But it was the first time I felt like I was experiencing something else. Um, and I know that's something you, you speak about. Do you, do you think that's something just in our culture, because we are kind of, we, we become removed from some of these shamanic pasts, that that's something that, that younger people just inherently feel sometimes drawn to because there's that essence in them that is looking for something else? So it's a good question. I mean, I, I often talk about things like, um, you know, rave culture, which for me kind of, you know, the, the, the so-called second summer of love of 1988, 1989 in the British Isles and the kind of then the emergence of that as both outlaw raves, but also then eventually becoming kind of club culture. Those, those things are psychedelic ceremonies. Yeah, I mean, how, you know, they, they may not involve some dude with like a hat with feathers on and formally giving out the medicine and all this kind of stuff. But as an opportunity for people to come together, to um, to come together in a space which is very uh, 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 ecstatic, potentially playful, where we're kind of interacting in this much more kind of, uh, like you say, in some respects, a kind of childlike kind of uh, appreciation of things. You know, very often clubs or festival environments will have artworks that are designed for you to just marvel at or climb over or whatever, like interacting with them in, in the way that we would as, as children with, with things. And if you think about something like uh, MDMA club culture, you know, the rhythm that's used is exactly the same as the rhythm that you'll hear in a Native American peyote ceremony. Boom, 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 boom. Speed of a fetal heartbeat. Yeah, that's what that's what we do. So um, I think in every meaningful sense of the term, these are psychedelic ceremonies. I remember once in, uh, I think it must have been like 96, being in Goa and uh, there's a guy called, a uh, DJ called Gil, 
Goa Gill, who is like uh, playing a set. And he opened with that uh, classic line of, uh, from Jim Morrison, where it sort of says, you know, is everybody in? Is everybody in? Everybody in. The ceremony is about to begin. So like it's, it's perceived that way by many people. The desire to have ecstasy, ecstasis, to be in a situation where we can kind of stand outside of ourselves. And very often when we stand outside of ourselves, we do so like in a community, which is kind of paradoxical, but it's the case. We, we find ourselves kind of dancing to this rhythm so that we both become absolutely individually who we are, but also kind of collectively this uh, one being, you know, we seek this out. We, we've always sought this out as, as humans and probably before we were even anatomically the kind of creatures that we are now. And um, there are many iterations of this and some cultures can be more or less accepting of that desire, I guess. Uh, some periods in history uh, uh, f allow this desire to happen, but, uh, but, but kind of um, corral it in certain ways. So if you look at, an, uh, say, a United, uh, an evangelical church meeting in the United States, it's absolutely an ecstatic event. How the experiences are then understood and how those experiences are interpreted by people with positions of power within that organization, that has a certain kind of quality to it. Um, uh, whereas something like um, festival environments, I mean, the, the, the music festival that, you know, there were uh, no music festivals in the same way that we kind of understand it really until LSD came into European culture. So the music festival, Woodstock, all of those events, you know, those are spaces which were kind of uh, curated, developed by the communities who were encountering things like um, consciousness changing agents like acid. And they created these spaces. And then when, when MDMA came along again, we created like slight variations of the spaces. You know, we recognized that this medicine liked the nice regular rhythm, but it also liked the opportunity to like lie there, be tactile with your friends, sit and chat, floaty music. So we listened to what the medicine told us and we built structures, however imperfectly, to support and to uh, frame those experiences. It's what we do. All of us do this all of the time. Some cultures, like I say, are more or less welcoming to that, those events. Um, but even if we, if we, you know, if we go right back into the kind of the, the envelope of prehistory, I mean, it's, it's, it's entirely probable that humans, for the vast majority of our, our, our experience, uh, our, our being in the world, we probably existed in small groups of, you know, a couple of hundred individuals, but we would periodically get together and we would have big festivals. We would have, uh, you know, we would eat, drink, make love, uh, dance, engage in things that we might describe as religious experiences and also trade, you know, all of these things. If you look at somewhere like, um, say, uh, the ritual landscape of Wiltshire, where Stonehenge most famously is, um, we can see that what this is, is this is places where people got together and had big parties. Yeah. And, and um, one of the interesting things, I think, about this whole idea of psychedelic ceremony and those kind of ecstatic you know whether it's clubs or outlaw raves or or, or or whatever is that this is like a human given this is like what we do what our species does you know we gather together around the fire you know fire is our primary technology as our species you know pretty much everything else we do is a variate you know other species do variations of it fire the capturing the management the production of fire that's our kind of special power and, uh, you know, I suspect that when all the kind of um, research on psychedelic therapy is done, it will turn out that the best environment to take psychedelics is actually with a small group of peers around a fire during the nighttime in a beautiful natural setting. 
which is kind of what our you know what our ancestors have been doing for like forever you know um so yeah this is these are these are rituals we we are we are ritual using meaning making creatures you know we lay we lay flowers on the grave of our dead you know in fact the neanderthal people laid flowers on the graves of their dead you know we make ritual we make these practices and the ecstatic group experience of coming together with music and with consciousness changing agents whether those are alcohol or whether that's mdma or lsd or you know mushrooms whatever it happens to be and the collective process through this alteration of consciousness this letting go of body armor and of the face that we have to put on in front of the world and being with others very important very important thing for us to be able to do as people and and to find you know good uh, ways to do this that are sensitive to you know resources um uh to uh consent to safety all of these kind of things of course of course of course but it's something we need to do something we have to do yeah yeah beautiful um something you mentioned which i think is really interesting is a lot of the work i do it's uh it's a very personal process it's um I think a lot of people come to this work for this sense of like a deep healing, a deep connection. And something you mentioned is this idea about a collective. And I think that's something we've really forgotten. And it seems like there's this really interesting balance between like deep interpersonal work, which these plants, these traditions give us access to, but also it seems there was a like a very cathartic experience that people went through as groups, as collectives uh, of taking these plants. And it wasn't like, of course, there's always a, an individual experience that someone is going through, but a lot of these ceremonies were in a collective with a community that really seemed to bring that community together and resolve issues to, to go into a deep collective experience. So, what do you think is that balance between what not only these plants, but these traditions with this individual, almost like this Buddha archetype of, of, of finding salvation, finding enlightenment versus these collective ceremonies of, of really bringing groups together? It's a very interesting question. I mean, you know, the obvious answer is um, that sometimes one is helpful and sometimes the other approach is helpful you know sometimes it's sometimes we need to go off as individuals and do our vision quest in a way where we whether we do that vision quest with the eye shades on and the headphones in our in our living room or whether or not we do that vision quest by going into some remote uh, location um and certainly we know uh from the history of say say the you know the major religious traditions um, this is a point I think that uh, Alistair Crowley makes in one of his books, a, a text called Book Four, where he kind of looks at um, uh, Muhammad and Jesus and uh, uh, Moses um, and Buddha. And he says, OK, so what do these people all have in common beyond the fact that they're men and beyond the fact that, you know, they they live, you know, uh, a, a matter of a, a number of hundred years kind of around about the same kind of period in, in time. And he says, well, the common thread with all of them is all of them go off somewhere on their own. Something happens. And then they come back and they tell everyone about it and say, hey, I've got this big down. You know, we, we use the expression today, don't we? A download. I've got this download from like the great whatever. Here it comes. 
And uh, Crow- Crowley points out that um, with the stories of uh, uh, Jesus and, uh, and Muhammad and Moses, we have these kind of metaphorical stories of going to mountains or going into the desert or whatever. And the only dude who actually t- tells us the technique, like what is it they did? What, what did they get up to in this space is Buddha. And Buddha says, well, I meditated. I sat under a tree and I did some meditation. And so like the, the logic goes, well, meditation might be a place to start. Meditation, of course, in many respects, uh, it's a it's a it's a difficult word because it's a bit like saying exercise. You know, it's very it's very general. But in many respects, that's a kind of turn. It's often thought of as turning inward, like a kind of going into deep into the in, into the self to explore that. Whether we discover a diamond Atman self or whether we discover an absence of any quality doesn't really matter. It's that turning inward and being being uh, a, um, an individual. You know, doing our hero's journey. That's great. But human beings. The very fact that you and I have language, that's a gift to us from our lineage and all the people who cared for us, however good, bad or imperfectly, we exist within a collective linguistic space. We exist as human beings. Um, You know, there's brief periods of time when we can look after ourselves. But when we're infants, when we're when we're old, when we're uh, pregnant, when we're um, unwell, you know, all of these situations, we have to come together with other people. And so one of the great challenges, I think, for any of those experiences that we have as individuals is like, okay, so that's cool. You got your download. You went off to wherever and you took whatever medicine it was and you had this great revelation. That's brilliant. How do we take that and turn that into something that that makes sense in terms of your relationship with everybody else and in terms of that kind of communal experience? Because that's where we live. You know, we're a social ape. And so... Um, the interesting thing about that is that then if you look at um, a lot of uh, um, entheogenic kind of lineages, they will have traditions of vision quest, of going off on your own, going and doing the dieta, going and doing like a solitary practice. And they will also often have practices that are intensely communal. So if you take, um, even if they're not necessarily uh, entheogenic, so if you take something like a, a sweat lodge, temescal kind of sweat lodge process, like it's an intensely interpersonal experience, you know? I mean, you're, you know, you don't even know where your body ends and the, the heat or the other bodies begin, you know? That's the, that's the deal. And the, the example I often give with this is the, the, the great temple of Eleusis, you know? We, we, we had in the beating heart of European culture for at least a thousand years, probably a lot longer, we had this psych, psychedelic initiatory temple. Um, and it was a temple to which all, uh, you know, many, many, many people would go, including, you know, the emperor and lawmakers and um, philosophers and architects, as well as anyone else who wanted to go along. You know, women could go, slaves could go, anyone could go as long as they could speak Greek so they knew what was going down in the ritual. And so if they lost their lost property, they could try and find it. And secondly, they had to not be a murderer. Right. And the whole point about this experience was also that you could be sat there in the telesterion, the great ritual chamber, which bear in mind had 3000 people in it at a time. You could be sat next to the emperor and then the emperor is sat next to like a baker from like, you know, from Britain, let's say. And then they're sat next to uh, a philosopher who happens to come come from, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, North Africa, somewhere like this. It's a communal experience. And there's a really interesting work at the moment, you know, we're looking at things like um, conflict resolution. So I was reading some stuff recently about um, 
people t- uh, using uh, kind of ayahuasca in particular, but other medicines too, looking at how um, uh, Palestinians and Israelis might be able to kind of go through these experiences together, you know, because like any shared experience, when we go through this together, even though your report of what happened to you and my report of what happened to me might be different, you know, maybe you've touched kind of uh, some kind of, um, you know, beautiful bliss-like experience and I've had to deal with all kinds of personal trauma that's come up but nevertheless we've been in the same physical space maybe the same taken the same medicine gone through the same kind of process we have a commonality even if our stories are very different so I think we have to just have the you know balance those two things up I think the other thing that kind of comes to mind here is that um in psychedelic research there's uh, a lot of in a lot of interest and there's a famous diagram from I think kind of 2016 some psilocybin research that was done that compares uh, what neurologists call the default mode network with the brain as it exists when it takes uh, it, it's ingested as psychedelic. And the default mode network is basically the state of awareness that happens to a person when you just put them in an fMRI scanner and you don't ask them to do anything. So the default mode network is the state that many of us are in mo- a lot of the time. That's why we call it the default state. So I'm sitting here, not really doing anything, sort of thinking about what I'm going to do next, what, I'm, what I was doing previously, thinking about who I am. Now, in Western cultures, that's our default state. That's the kind of thing that we revert to when we are on our own. In many cultural settings, we would not be on our own. Being on our own would be slightly weird, you know. Like maybe when we do a vision quest, maybe when we go off on some hunting or gathering party, perhaps, you know, on our own conceivably, but more likely with a small group of other people. The default state, the state of being isolated, we think of that as normal. Neurologists call it the default mode network. And I would suggest that probably for the vast majority of human experience, living in those small groups of a couple of hundred individuals may be intensely present in everyone's lives having a series of personal pronouns which are not about my um, either apparent or desired uh, gender identity but are about my relationship so the pronoun I might use when I talk about myself in relation to my mother or myself in my relation to my children or my uncle or whatever those change you know lots of um, say aboriginal uh, languages from what we now call Australia have this feature and it's a feature of lots lots of kind of um, other language groups Whereas we tend to think of ourselves as these kind of isolated little things, these little sort of, you know, uh, unitary selves. And that's far from the case. You know, even the even the fact that, you know, you and I can eat our food is down to the fact that there are all these microbes in our gut, which, are, you know, that's part of an ecology that was given to us by our parents when they chewed their food and put it in our mouth or checked that it was the right temperature. That's how that ecology has moved through our species. We're an ecological being and we're a connected being. And if you look at something like the research that was done in, I think it was something like 2019 with um, psilocybin research at, I think it was Imperial in, in Imperial College in London, where they had people with treatment resistant depression, right? So these are folks who've had like really bad time, really difficult um, experiences and have had lots of different treatment to help them with their depression. And one of the things that um, was noticed in the report, and if you check out, there's a guy called Sam Gandhi, who's got a really nice talk on YouTube that sort of gives the, um, the, the, the essence of this. Um, the people who were coming into the, um, the trial, they were asked, well, why, why are you depressed? What's the reason that you're depressed? And they would say, oh, well, here, you know, here is the various factors. Here's, you know, my tr- past trauma. Here's my difficult circumstances now, blah, blah, blah. 
during the trial of uh, taking the psilocybin or after taking the psilocybin, the vast majority of people recognized that the reason for their depression, a significant reason for their depression was lack of connection, lack of connection with aspects of themselves, with their community, their family, their friends, and also with the biology and the wider ecosystem around them. So these people who are depressed, they don't know that, that it's disconnection that's the problem. They have no idea. But as soon as they go through the psychedelic experience, they pop out the other end and go, oh, do you know what? I need to go and hug a tree. Like, literally, that's the thing. And we know this from a well-being point of view. If you've got mild to moderate depression, you're much better off going and having a walk and talking to the plants and animals you see than taking a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's objectively more effective. So the relationship between this individual and the collective is obviously, like I said at the beginning, it's what we have to do. Yeah, we are both individual and collective creatures. But I would suggest that the kind of the collective side of things is something that we, and I say we, you know, people in Euro-American culture, whatever that means, we're we're working our way out of a world in which we've become these atomized individuals, you know, all living on our own, all you know, con concerned primarily about our own needs, aspirations, desires. And our needs and aspirations and desires mean nothing, absolutely nothing, unless they are in some respects acknowledged, embedded, and in tune with the environment in which we live. So I think that there's a case for saying that us Westerners, me, there's a, there's a, a great benefit in kind of really being thoughtful about the kind of collective side of these things. It's not the only story. Because Buddha probably had to go off on his own. Probably if he'd had several mates sitting around with him, chatting to him, it might have been a bit of a distraction. He might not have got the download. Yeah, But, um, but Buddha was only there because of all the people that had supported him, all the people that had given him food, all the people that have looked after him when he was a baby, all the people, you know, it is really a collective act. It just doesn't look like it because we're so obsessed with the hero's journey. We think that the, the hero is all that there is. And the hero is, 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 the hero is nothing unless they have their allies and they have their friends and their community. Yeah, it's very interesting because um, a lot of the work I do, there seems to be a common archetype of, of people who come down for, for these plant ceremonies. And it's, it's often people coming from what we would call a more Western background. They, they live in a city. Uh, they're often very successful. Uh, but they, they seem to be lacking, uh, as you said, a sense of connection, a sense of purpose. Um, uh, a sense of community, uh, uh, what their higher calling is, is often something that comes up. And it's very interesting because we live in this time where, as you said, we, we focus more and more in the individual, and yet we seem to be lacking in the collective. And it seems like a lot of the issues that we're facing uh, as a collective right now is this lack of a collective. And we seem to be turning towards even these things like identity politics and 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 looking for you know a group to belong to and 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 dividing ourselves further and further because at our core we we've become disconnected to these things and even it's something very interesting i see there seems to be a, a rise in in things like atheism or agnosticism and and yet seemingly it appeals very much, I think, to the intellectual mind, the mind that can rationalize and, and put compartmentalize and, and reductionize things. 
And yet, interestingly, it seems to be leading to, as you said, this, this depression, because the more and more that, that we kind of try and understand things, the further and further we get away from things like community and, and, and faith and, and the sense of awe, like the things we can't understand. And it, it just seems to be this really interesting dance of, as you said, this, this dance between individualism and, and collectivism. Um, one of the things that, that you're alluding towards, and, and I know it's always a very strange word, but this idea of Western civilization, which I think really now in the time we live is most of the world. I mean, it's a, that's kind of the predominant worldview in most places. Something I find very interesting that you're doing is, as you mentioned in the beginning, this idea of, of, of shamanism is we often view that as like a guy in Siberia wearing feathers and dancing around with a, a tambourine. And yet, from what I see, you know, we, we talk about these things like, like God or, or spirituality, the, these ideas that, that we are all, in essence, the same. We, we come from a source. We, we share a collective human story. And yet it seems like in a lot of the cultures we come from, that story has been lost. And, and especially, again, for lack of a better word, like in the West. And it seems like something really interesting you're doing is, I don't know if the right word is rediscovering or, or remembering but getting in touch with these very shamanic traditions, like you mentioned, Eleusis, which, you know, in the West, that would, we kind of say that's the basis of our cultures, this Greek culture, which was probably even rooted in Egyptian culture. But these traditions like Eleusis, and you mentioned Wicca and, and uh, esotericism and, um, you know, these, these ancient European practices. So what has that journey been like for you of, of rediscovering the, the roots of those things, which seem to have been really lost? I mean, I imagine there's still pockets of them and, and people who have maintained that knowledge, but for, for the masses of people, it, I mean, even that word esoteric, it, it's, it has connotations of something like really old and lost and dead. <laughs> and yet there's something that's very alive in it. So what has that, that journey been like for you of, of kind of trying to rediscover these things and, and take what you've learned from potentially some of these cultures that have been able to keep that alive and yet finding the roots of these other traditions that, that seemingly have, may have been lost? I know that's a big question, but <laughs> yeah, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a good one. I mean, I think I think just briefly to return to to, to the Eleusinian thing to just talk about that for a moment. I think for me, although this is a kind of counterfact um, uh, counterfactual thing, you can't we can't prove this. As soon as European culture doesn't have the psychedelic initiation at Eleusis, one of the things that happens over the course of the next what. Um, I guess 500 or 1,000 years, something of this order, is that our culture becomes so disconnected that we become, um, we go off and we destroy large parts of the planet. We predate on it. We extractivize, you know, materials from it. And very often we're interested in uppers and downers. We're interested in tea, coffee, cocaine, tobacco, opium, distilled alcohol, and so on. So we behave just like a sort of an individual human who's suffering. We try and find things to deal with our suffering. It doesn't work terribly well. Um, because we're disconnected from the psychedelic experience. In terms of my own journey with some of that territory, I suppose some of it is about uh, rediscovering or remembering 
the fact that within the kind of Western esoteric tradition, within the, the kind of stuff that we often think of as just magic, there are traditions of uh, the use of um, uh, psychoactive plants of various descriptions. Um, and we know, for example, if you go and read a kind of... Uh, early modern or medieval grimoire and it talks about summoning spirits to visible appearance sounds great go and have a look at what's in the incense and then you will see why summoning a spirit to a visible appearance is absolutely doable because if you put henbane and you put opium and you put large quantities of cannabis in your incense which is what you do the chances of you having a visionary experience are significant so we actually have a strand within the European tradition, even allowing for the closure of the Eleusinian mysteries. We have a strand which appears, um, it appears in alchemy, it appears in um, uh, various kind of magical cultures. But also we have this kind of, we do definitely have this radical disconnection from a lot of the kind of the entheogens, uh, particularly if you look at things like the um, phenethylamines, you look at things like peyote and San Pedro and so on. These only appear in the biology of the Americas. There's no, to my knowledge, there's no kind of significant amount of these substances in, an, in a, a, a readily available way um, in uh, the, the quote old world. We do have things like tryptamines and we do have things like, you know, where I live in the British Isles, we have lots and lots of liberty caps, psilocybe semilanciata, very strong. I think it's like, it's among the top tier of potency of psychedelic mushrooms. We also know that we have no tradition. There's no, in Britain, there's a, there was a book written, it's probably 20 years ago now by a guy called Andy Letcher called Shroom, which is like the history of particularly the British, um, but also more broadly European connection with these mushrooms and it seems that we were uh, ignorant of them until the whole story with you know that beautiful lady maria sabina reminds us and circumstances evolved so that we figure out that hey guy turned out the medicine grew here all the time it was right under our noses in the sheep shit we just didn't notice that it was there you know um so for me i suppose a lot of it has been like uh i have moved away in my practice from ritual which is um say kind of uh kind of when i first started doing ritual practice i found that there were uh these ceremonies which were kind of um scripted attempts to uh, induce altered states of awareness and they worked they worked fairly well you know there was sort of a ritual invocation people kind of you know taking on the um uh, sort of possession states ritual poetry um different ways of uh, creating sacred space and so on. And as I've done more, yeah, quotes, shamanism, my practice has become uh, simpler in a way, I guess. Um, and what I aspire to do is to, um, I have uh, a lot of the kind of ritual technologies that perhaps I might have used, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago have changed so that I, I uh, find myself working more frequently with um just uh if i'm working in a kind of a ritual situation i'm less like i'm not likely to have a kind of an overall structure but then what happens within that structure is likely to be a little bit more guided by the process and by the medicine and the people so to give you an example i remember man it must be like it must be kind of like getting on for 30 years ago i remember having an opportunity to sit with um some native american church folks yeah 
um, and experience the peyote ceremony in the way that they do it with this kind of beautiful crescent-shaped altar, the special way of doing the fire and so on. And then, you know, one of my best friends kind of works as a, as a firekeeper for, for a number of these kind of uh, folks uh, running the fire. And I've sat with them and also sort of over time gradually kind of contributed to these sorts of settings. So I then am able to kind of take some of those ideas away, take that design away, pay respect to those people. I ain't made this stuff up. You know, this is something that's come from a continuously changing tradition because, of course, the Native American church tradition mostly hails from the middle, latter part of the 19th century, 20th century is when it develops. You know, this is all... This is all a work in progress, right? There's no, that's one of the things is like, ain't no kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, fixed traditional culture that I go back to and say, guys, how do you do the things? Because like the way that they do it now, the way that they did it two months ago, the way that they're, you know, the lineage, put, I mean, it changes just like it, they're, he, he, these people are humans. Yeah? It's, it's the same story, of course. But nevertheless, the design of the Native American church, this way of sitting with this medicine, the way of using the drum, the way of kind of taking turns to pray, all of these things. I really like that because it provides me enough of a ritual framework. And I'm very familiar with setting up ritual frameworks. And then for me, kind of working in that space, it's like what you're trying to do is you're trying to tap into like a, the authenticity and the truth of the moment. So when you speak in a ceremony, you you try and you know, try is the wrong word, but one aspires to, I aspire to having the thing that needs to be said, be said through me. Yeah. So very often um, at the end of a ceremony, someone will say, I don't know, they might say, oh, I really like that bit that you said when we did the prayers for whatever. And I'll often say, I have no idea what I said really, because you're trying to kind of be in this flow state where it all just kind of goes through. So my own journey with that, I suppose, has been coming from the kind of Western esoteric tradition, which had lots of, um, which appeared to have lots of kind of very structural elements in terms of its performance and a little bit of like add-on entheogenic stuff with the incense to a place where the entheogenic stuff becomes the centre and there is a design that holds the ceremony rather like the traditional magician's circle. But the way the ceremony unfolds, although it may have particular movements, particular points, so the Native American church, you know, you have a midnight, you have midnight water where you drink some water and you go outside the teepee for a piss. That's what you do, right? Um, so there's kind of elements within that. But exactly how the thing unfolds is led by the community, the medicine, and an aspiration to be authentic in that time with those people. Does that answer that a bit, Jason? I don't know. Is that <laughs> what you're after? I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully that helped. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I know this is another kind of big question, but I think for a lot of people listening, they probably heard these terms like, like Wicca or um, esoteric philosophy or even magic, like with a K. Mm -hmm. How would how would you define some of these terms? Because I think like anything, even like shamanism, it's such you, you can everyone can look at it, that word and have a million different views upon it. For you, what are what are some of the bases of these what we would call maybe more European traditions? What, what do you think the the. I, I don't even know how to frame it, but like, how would you define those, I guess, would be the easiest way to to, to say. 
I'd say that magic in its in the broadest sense is a series of um, traditions or practices that exist within uh, that often exist within dominant religious uh, structures. And those practices tend to be about facilitating uh, an individual personal experience of the divine, which could be in community with others. So it could be like a collective experience. But the point is that rather than it being an experience of the divine where, you know, I sit there and I say, hey, Jason, this is how the divine is. Let me tell you. Right. So the sacred works like this and this and this and this. And in order for you to be like in its good books, you have to do this thing and this thing and this thing. So rather than it being about that, it's about like, OK, so how do we get primary experience for ourselves or the group we're with? So if you look at the Sufi tradition within Islam, if you look at mystical Christianity and Gnosticism within the broader Christian tradition, if you look at the Kabbalah as it exists within Judaism, um, if you ex look at the way that uh, alchemy uh, and ceremonial magic existed within the Christianity of the medieval and the early modern period in Europe. That's where magic dwells. So magic is, is a whole variety of different techniques, which on, on one hand are about kind of uh, uh, giving you uh, a kind of personal revelation rather than taking or rather than receiving a revelation from somebody else and then saying, OK, I'll follow that. I think the other thing that magic is about is it's about like the transformation of inner and outer reality. And there are many ways of thinking about that, but probably one of the easiest is to imagine that magic is uh, a repertoire of techniques that allow those transformations to happen. And, and my, my simple definition of magic is that it's the technology of the imagination. So we utilize the imagination, the human capacity to think all kinds of crazy stuff, all kinds of interesting things. So rather than saying, well, you know, we know our imaginations can be fooled. We know we can get misperception. We know all this sort of stuff is true. And it's also the case that we know that the imagination is incredibly powerful. And the, the, the simplest example of this would be placebo effect. Now, we talk about placebo effect and we go, ah, placebo effect. Yeah, we understand that. No problem. Placebo effect is incredibly interesting. So placebo effect, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will be familiar with the idea. But basically what that is, it's the capacity of the imagination, particularly when uh, a substance is provided to an individual in a certain kind of cultural envelope or wrapper. It's the power of that individual's imagination to affect real change in terms of perhaps their physiology. And we know that this is this is easily provable that our imagination can make these changes. If I say to you, Jason, I'd like you to make your mouth start watering now, you could probably do it to some extent. But if I say to you, imagine a lemon, Jason, imagine the most lemony lemon that you've ever, the, the uber lemon, the ultimate lemon. Now imagine this ultimate lemon. Now imagine, imagine how it smells. Imagine the taste and the color of the lemon. Imagine taking an imaginary knife and cutting the imaginary lemon. And imagine that sharp smell of lemon and then imagine on biting the imaginary and your mouth starts start salivating right so what we do is we're using an imaginal technique to change real physiological stuff which i couldn't do just by going right make your mouth water now so we use a whole series of practices which deliberately engage the imaginal capacity of humans in order to make transformations inner or outer Another example, and these are, the, uh, and I'll, I'll explain something about this in a second. Imagine that you cast a spell. You did a sigil. That's a very popular way of doing this these days. And you wanted to get a new job. So one of the ways of approaching this would be to say, well, I want to cast a spell in order for me to be more sensitive to good, good opportunities, right? 
Now, we can think of this as psychology. Psychology, historically, is a door to science of magic in the same way that chemistry is the door to science of, of, uh, of alchemy. And we can, you know, I can take you through the whole history of the way that the Royal Society for Science was developed. You know, Isaac Newton wrote much more about astrology and alchemy than he wrote about what we today call physics. And even the physics he talked about was action at a distance, a mysterious property of the universe that was describable mathematically, but no one knew how it worked at all. But it still seemed to be real. So psychology, positive thinking, all of that sort of stuff is one aspect of what we might decide, describe as magic. And magic is the, the knowledge and the repertoire of technique which we can use to, to make these transformations inner and outer. And for us to, and that, those transformations can include a direct, direct kind of personal experience with the sacred, the divine, you know, whatever we want to call it. Just like Buddha. Buddha is the only dude who actually gives us the technique. He says, I did a thing called meditation. So we can go ahead and we can look up, what, what is this meditation? What do we do? Ah, I see, I have to sit there, notice my breath, and when thoughts arise, I notice them, and then I bring myself back to my breath. I rinse and repeat. Yeah. We know that this changes the way the brain works. We know this changes the uh, neuroanatomy between the amygdala and the hippocampus. Like it makes real-world effects, just imagining a bunch of stuff. So that's, I guess, my definition. The technology of the imagination is the short, pithy version of that. Yeah, it's very fascinating because uh, that idea of imagination, and as you said, you know, it's very, I mean, just like the example you used with the lemon, it's, it's, if, if we can invoke that, it has the same physical properties as if we were actually eating a lemon. And often in, in this shamanic ideology, I think there's often this confusion between reality and a shamanic reality and we often discredit things whether we have an, a, an imaginal experience a, a shamanic experience of something and we say well it's not real and yet I think in that shamanic worldview it is real because it's happening and much like if we have a very strong dream and we wake up from that dream our hearts pumping or we may be sweating I mean it's as real as if it, it had actually happened but I think there's like a disconnect almost in the language of if it's not maybe a shared experience, then we think it's not real. And yet it seems like what many of these traditions are invoking is actually this chance to experience a reality that's beyond the limits that are imposed to us in this physical reality, things like time and space and gravity and you know distance we we can only go so far in this reality and yet in that imaginal or shamanic realm theoretically we have access to infinity to to things that are beyond the ordinary sense perception i think another really interesting thing you you mentioned <clears throat> this idea of like maria sabina how it was only through the rediscovery of another tradition that had kept this, this knowledge alive that we began to remember something like mushrooms and, and the use in a ritual sense. But I, I would always find it interesting because when I was a kid, I was really interested in like fairies and fairy tales. And, and then I kind of got away from it. But recently I started going back and it was fascinating, like looking at some of these old drawings and there'd be a fairy under like a devil's trumpet tree or the gnomes were always around mushrooms. And 
So it almost seemed like that knowledge was there. Do you you think, again, that was something that was lost? And like via this, uh, this example you used of Maria Sabina, like we remembered it? Or do you think it was something that never happened and we just, oh, we, we had to go to Maria Sabina to realize that that was there the whole time? So again, again another good question. I mean, I guess um, in terms of, in terms of that, in terms of the, the fairy and mythological associations uh, with mushrooms and with those other power plants, you know, we know that in the European tradition, there's a great connection between um witches and fairies and various kind of uh plants that are uh what i like to think of as the scary potato family of of plants you know all those kind of like uh solanaceous um uh the daturas and henbanes and aconites and all these things that have very very powerful properties um uh and tend towards being i guess most people will think of them as kind of delirious rather than psychedelics in the certainly in the classical kind of sense we know that in Uh, Andy Letcher's book, I think, mentions the first recorded incident of what was almost certainly a psilocybin uh, intoxication, let's call it, uh, in the 18th century, where a family in Britain were found to have consumed some mushrooms and they had immoderate laughter and very dilated pupils. So that kind of suggests that that's what was going on. Um, I think uh, in Terence McKenna's work and, and, and maybe even sort of at least indirectly in the Wassons, there was that kind of idea that perhaps, perhaps with some cultures, not all of every culture, but with some cultures within Europe, the fact that you avoided mushrooms might have even been because of some ancient taboo, ancient prohibition that they were only able to be used in certain ways. Um, we also know, of course, that you know the vast majority of them are kind of completely fine. Uh, all mushrooms, of course, are edible, um, but uh, some of them only once as uh, Terry Pratchett once wisely observed. So you have to be quite careful with these things. You know, there are, there are a few, certainly in the British Isles, that, you know, you could make a, a mistake with. But most of the really deadly species are fairly, fairly obvious, at least in this landscape. Um, why did we need to go and make that journey? I don't know. It's a really interesting story because we've got the first accounts of people, I think from the 30s, I think from the late 30s, there's a couple of anthropologists who sat with uh, who were the first Europeans to sit in a um, a mushroom ceremony with uh, I think that was also with the kind of Mazatec folk um, and then later on you've got this story that um, Robert Graves the famous uh, writer poet and of course one of the people who was really instrumental in creating the modern pagan revival uh, by writing a book with the white goddess he wrote to the Wassons and said do you want to go and check out this stuff happening in South America I've read an, a, a report it's a really fascinating story because it's also, I think it's a really good lesson for us um, Europeans that when we go somewhere else to take medicine, we just have to be massively thoughtful about the implications of what we're doing. You know, we have to do this in a really, really sensitive way um, because Maria Sabina's uh, experience of um, suddenly finding herself, you know, on, on uh, the front page as it were, wasn't great really um, uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination. So um, one of the things I suppose I'm always interested in is like, can we find this medicine in our own landscape? Can we learn to cultivate this? Um, can we engage with this in, the, in this kind of really kind of direct way where we start to learn a little bit about the plants? We find, you know, if we're going to go and um, harvest mushrooms, we're going to go and take them from the landscape. How do we do this properly? How do we, you know, do we remember to flick the 
uh, the mushroom so that it drops its spore? Do we remember to pinch it with our nails so that we don't damage the mycelium underneath? We have to get into like a good relationship with this this kind of thing. Um, I think it's the associations have always been there and there are kind of little pointers, particularly as you go further east in Europe and into uh, sometimes called old Europe, Eastern Europe and into Russia, there may well have been communities there in the same way that possibly people like the, the Sami communities were making use of Amanita and perhaps other mushrooms as well. So I think it's kind of there in the mix, but it's so, uh, it's so occluded, it's so kind of hidden by all this other stuff, you know, um, that it, it's very, very difficult for us to see. It certainly wasn't you know, once once the psilocybin was brought from Maria Sabina and eventually, of course, ends up in Albert Hoffman's lab for him to kind of do the assay and discover that it's this substance called psilocybin. Once we've done that, we could then look around and go, dude, this stuff is everywhere. Like pretty much every, you know, every continent bar, bar Antarctica has got these things growing on them. And we now know that there are, I know the last time I had a, a, an actual kind of look at the figures, I think we're sort of both with psilocybin mushrooms and with the inocybin mushrooms that contain psilocybin, we're probably getting on for like 200 different species at least on the planet. So our disconnection from the psychedelic gnosis, the psychedelic experience was really deep. And it was, you're right, hidden kind of in plain sight in some of this children's literature and some of these fairy stories in some of these social prohibitions even the one that said you don't eat mushrooms they're all basically dangerous don't go near them it's probably better just to leave them all alone the fairies have them nothing to do with us you know so it's so, a you know a, a beautiful difficult um story with maria sabina but i i you know i i bless that woman and for and and um you know, I, I wish things had worked out, but like better for her and for the the kind of community around around her. But uh, I think that this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in this situation where now we know, now we know, and not only do we know about things like the mushrooms, but we know about the cactus. We know about all of the different novel materials that are being made by alchemists around the planet. We know about. Um, uh, we've got a much more uh, a great understanding of the, um, the you know the chemistry and so on. And amusingly, what we're also doing is we're just recapitulating all the research that was done in the 1960s. Like I was reading, where is it? I've been reading this. So this is a book called uh, LSD, The Problem Solving Psychedelic, right? 1967, okay? And it's a, and it's a book, it's, it's written just as LSD is about to become uh, a, a controlled substance in the United States. And in that book, they're saying, hey, we've got this, material this 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 magical molecule called lsd it allows people to problem solve that includes problem solving when they're in trauma so in other words healing but also it allows people to problem solve when they've got engineering problems you know we know that things like the pcr test the polymerized chain reaction test that we're using now to look at things like the the covid virus that's as a result of kerry mullins who was the researcher tripping on acid and having an insight about how that how that a uh, uh, piece of technology might be developed so like what's that like 50 odd years ago we were already there and then the drug war happened uh, you know which is basically a very convenient way of saying all you people involved in the civil rights movement all you you know people involved in the women's rights movement all you people involved in the vietnam movement and all you people involved in youth culture you're now all criminals and we can bust you 
because of these plants and these substances, you know? So we've got a lot of catching up to do. And, um, you know, time perhaps is short in some respects. It'd be good if we kind of, you know, got on with it, really. <laughs> you, you mentioned this idea, and I think it's it's very interesting, this idea of tradition. And it, it's something I uh, I feel quite strongly about, too. And there's often, I, I think I, I heard a, a talk of yours, and, and you mentioned this idea that, that often when we speak about tradition, there can be kind of this patronizing element to it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with iSeers, but one of the the guys who runs that, his name is Ben, and uh, I think it's him. I, I often attribute this quote to him, so if it's not him, I apologize, but I give him credit anyway. But he says this idea that like when the Europeans first came to the Americas, the, the indigenous person was too indigenous and they needed to be more European. And that today it's the opposite. They're too European and they need to be more indigenous. And yet it's the same, it's the same mentality just from a different angle. And, and often when we look at tradition, I mean, I, I saw it very much when I, when I came to the Amazon and, uh, there, there'd be like a piece of plastic on the ground and people were like freaking out, like, ah, oh, you know, this culture, you know, they're, they're destroying the rainforest. And meanwhile, there, there's seems to be like a glaring hole where they're not seeing like all of the impact they're having. Um, but even like most of the, the, the really good, I would say, cordanderos I work with, they, they don't wear feathers. Like, I mean, by wearing something like feathers, you would be very conspicuous. It would actually draw an unwanted attention. It would almost be like inflating the ego in a way. And, and I think very much uh, someone who does this work well is very humble, very inconspicuous. And so this idea that, that obviously, you know, tradition is always changing and, uh, you know, it, it's never stable. Um, and, and I was thinking the other day, something like Wachumo, which you mentioned, or, or San Pedro, it seems to me like a lot of that tradition has been lost. There, there aren't many indigenous practitioners of, of that medicine. And, and the ones who do use it, it's often done during the day. And, and I think it can be very powerful, but it's, it's kind of this connection of like nature and opening the heart and people have amazing experiences with it. But the area of Peru where it came from was this area called uh, Chavin, where they had this really deep connection, uh, allegedly, with this plant. And there, there's this very elaborate temple. There's like a river running through it. And you can see these statues of like a transformation of a man slowly into a jaguar. And there's all these different levels which have symbology. And it seemed like it was this super elaborate ritual. And yet... I think that's something that's been lost. I mean, nobody uses that temple anymore. And you mentioned Ulysses. And so I guess my question is, do you have a sense of what was happening in, in there? Because it does seem like they were using some sort of entheogenic substance. Mm. I mean, even these references of, you know, people like Marcus Aurelius and, you know, uh, I mean, all of these, these great thinkers, Pythagoras and, there was kind of this common motif of like, you go there and you die so that you can truly live, so that you can no longer be under the, the chains of the fear of death. 
And that's such a common shamanic motif when you are working with these very powerful plants that essentially the shamanic path is a, is a path of death. It's a, it's, a, it's a process of death and rebirth so that you can truly be alive. So, you know, this seems like a field that you're very interested in. So I'm just wondering if you, you know, personally, I mean, obviously, I guess nobody knows for sure, but what is your sense about what was going on there? Because that seems like such a, such a catalytic event and, and this time that really shaped so much of history. And yet we've, we've kind of just, we look back at it. I mean, I remember even in school, it's just kind of mentioned it was, you know, it was this kind of silly thing that people did. And <laughs> so this, I mean, it's, it, it's such an, I find it such an interesting thing because it, it works on so many levels in the sense that um, I often say to people, imagine your elected representative going on a, what was it now? Something like it was, it was like 10 days, 14 days, long pilgrimage, walking from the capital city, walking from the major city, walking from Athens, 22 kilometers to, uh, to, to the site of the Eleusinian Mysteries. Can you imagine your electoral representative going through this shamanic death and rebirth experience? And people laugh. People go, ha ha ha, no, that's really silly. I can't imagine, I don't know, who's our prime minister, Boris Johnson doing this. I can't imagine that. It's very hard for me to imagine, even though he's a classicist, it probably should. And the, the, the thing is the disconnect between the idea that, like, this is what happened. Like, you know, people in these positions of power, as well as anyone who could, uh, you know, who was able to, to make the pilgrimage and, 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 and spend the time to go to, because you had to go to the spring festival and then you had to go to the autumn festival afterwards. So it was quite a kind of commitment. But wealthy people would send even their their slaves. You know, they would send their their um, you know slaves who were perhaps tutoring their children. They would send them to the Eleusinian Mysteries, and it would be a, it's a big deal. So you've got this kind of long pilgrimage process with various rituals taking place. We know that thousands of people at a time were admitted to the main ritual hall called the Telesterion. We know that uh, from the uh, the descriptions that we have. Uh, that it was a place where there was lots of noise and probably lots of smoke and lots of darkness. And then we know that at some point in the ritual, the miraculous things were shown. And we don't know what those are. Um, there's some suggestion they were objects in baskets. There was some suggestion that there was a brilliant light of some, some type. And we know that there was a building inside the Telesterion, which was like the Holy of Holies. And perhaps they were kept in there. Maybe it was opened and there was a brilliant light. I mean, everyone's tripping, basically, because everyone's taken the Kaikion. The Kaikion means potion. You know, it's, it's, it's a potion in the way that ayahuasca is a potion. You know, it's a bunch of stuff that comes together to create a particular effect. There's some archaeological evidence from, I think it was... I think it was relatively recent, maybe it's 2016. Uh, Giorgio Samarini's written about it. Um, archaeological research from Spain, where there was a temple to the goddess uh, uh, Demeter, who was the same goddess who's, uh, who, who was the primary goddess at, at Eleusis. And in this particular sanctuary in Spain, they found a, a vessel, a cup, which has got ergot. Uh, residue in the bottom of it and also a human mandible so a jaw with ergot between the teeth right so that's pretty much a smoking gun so we can be pretty sure that this is an entheogenic ritual and we can be fairly convinced that it was some kind of material that had been taken from the ergot so it would have been an lsd style material if i was curating that ritual because of the duration of it 
and I was using the allies that I have perhaps access to, I would think about acid actually as one of the options, you know, a little bit longer than mushrooms. Um, uh, also like a tryptamine, we haven't got access to things like wachuma or peyote. Those things haven't come into our culture yet, or we don't think so. Um, so something that had a kind of a duration of about 10 hours, you know, eight to 10 hours, pretty good. Everyone went through the temple, everyone went through this experience. In a thousand years, over a thousand years, basically no one wrote down what happened in the Telesterion, like, which is hilarious from our modern point of view. Like every time we come up with a secret, it's on the internet within the first five minutes, you know, like people keep, people were so, you know, the, what, what happened, they were shown uh, the translation is literally the awesome things. We've no idea what they were for a thousand years. Everyone just went, they were awesome, but we can't say what they were. Um, and then afterwards, after the, the, this bright light, after the awesome things, everyone went out into the field that was behind the Telesterion, into a big area, a big um, outdoor enclosure. And this is the field that mythologically the first ever grain grew in. So when the goddess Demeter had first kind of, when the first grain was farmed, this is the place, this is the place. And also the, you know, the cave where Hades takes Persephone down into the underworld, that's in the same building. That's, that's just behind the Telesterion. So this is like a massively powerful archetypal location for these people. And and what you said about death is really important. There's um there's an interesting field called uh, terror management theory, uh, which has got a Wikipedia entry if you're not familiar with it, and just kind of go and look up terror management theory. And basically, it's it's this idea that human beings are at a really deep unconscious level. We're really panicked by the fact we know we're going to die, and then we take refuge in nationalism, racial identities, all kinds of things that kind of help us feel that we're not going to die. Unfortunately, taking refuge in that stuff, often others, a whole bunch of people who are not the same skin colour or the same eye colour or the same flag waving as, as we are. Now, the difference is if you look at people who have a near-death experience through an accident, through a psychedelic experience, through whatever, those people often are less grasping at the world. They are often more compassionate, more curious, more open, and kind of slightly counterintuitively from a straightforward point of view, they're less worried about dying. So all initiation rituals, doesn't matter who does them, doesn't matter where they happen, doesn't matter when they happen, they will basically look like a recapitulation of our experiences as humans being born. We're in a place of darkness in our mother, relative darkness, relative constriction, there's noise, there's strange smell, stuff's going on. And then we move from this into, into a moment of like revelation and light. And we experience in a sense of death. You know, this is all we know when we're inside the, our mother. This is all we have ever known. And that ends. And we come outside and we breathe and we're cut and we're the separate being. So all those initiatory experiences, the Eleusinian one or the experience that, you know, there's Michael Hanna taking ayahuasca and being put into the uh, hammock by the shaman dude. You know, you just sit in there and cook for a while. It'll be fine. It's in the darkness, surrounded by the sounds of the jungle. Same, same, but, you know, same thing. So these experiences of this kind of death and rebirth, this is something that I think is absolutely essential for the psychic health of humans. 
We absolutely have to do it. It doesn't matter. We don't have to do it with drugs necessarily. We can do it with any number of different things, you know. And our young people inherently seek these out. And that's why they engage in like risk-taking behavior and they'll take all kinds of experimental chemicals and they'll go and climb up precipitous buildings and then put the stuff on YouTube. Because we have to have these experiences. Otherwise, we go crazy, you know, to keep it simple. We, we, we find ourselves disconnected. We found ourselves adrift. And then we take refuge in very simple answers. We take refuge in, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, simple political answers, QAnon, conspiracy answers, anything that seems to give us like a solid place to stand because it's all too confusing and weird. The problem is that most of those simple answers in the face of the complexity of the world are not really worth the paper that they're written on. They don't actually answer anything. And in fact, they tend to actually cultivate more fear more disconnection, more othering than if we actually are able, we have, we're, we're, our culture and our um, circumstances permit us to go through these death and rebirth moments. And that's when we, f we, we become more fully human and we also become nicer to each other by and large, you know? Um, we become more compassionate. We become more ready to recognize that we may fear our own death and we may f fear the death of those that we love that are around us. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But also that maybe we get like a sense of something like deeper than that. That's kind of beyond that. That allows us not to just take refuge in a simple answer to the complex problem. But to actually be authentically present with the human reality of how we all are. You know, that's what makes a difference. That's what helps us be sane. Help, what helps us be well. Yeah, beautiful. It, it, kind of coming back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, I mean, it, it does seem you alluded to some of these ideas and it does seem like we're living in, in a time that's so divided and these collective identities are becoming fortified. You know, as you said, the, the color of my skin, my nation, my eye color, my, my gender, my identity. And, and a lot of these things, it, 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 to me, it almost seems like it's taking on a religious connotation. It, it's, it's almost like there's a righteousness there. There's something to fight for. I mean, even things that we may label as seemingly good, like but the language we use, like the fight for climate, the, there's a division, there's an apocalypse, there's an apocalyptic quality. It's, it's almost like this religious fervor that now we have a cause to fight for and we can label the good people and the evil people. And, you know, it gives us this, this righteousness and nationalism, you know, we, 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 we know the enemy and we know, but it's all this further dividing. It, it seems like, you know, all of these things at their essence, it's dividing, it's dividing the world into me and the other into good and bad. And I, I also find it interesting because all over the world, there does seem to be this emergence of plant work, which it's often spoken, you know, these, these archetypes of, as you said, the, the death and the rebirth and what that allows is a lessening of those, those layers, those identities, an emergence of compassion. Um, do you think there's like a symbiotic relationship of what's going on in the world? Like as it seems to be getting more divisive, there's also this emergence of this, this plant work that's maybe in a way trying to bring some sort of sanity or balance or, or healing to that? I guess every generation thinks that 
they're at the critical juncture of history, <laughs> I would imagine. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, there are there are many ways of looking at that. I kind of, I guess, uh, on, on one hand, I sort of, t I, I like to think of uh, a sort of slightly kind of Star Trek view of this. You know, it's rather like the um, the aliens turn up and they go, oh, you simple humans, you have been fighting amongst each other for such a long time. Why, why are you bothering to do this craziness? You know, so we're like a, we're like an adolescent youth, you know, um, we're like, we're like a, a teenager, and I, I speak as the father of two teenagers, who, who has sort of woken up in their bedroom, realised that it's a complete mess. They kind of come to and gone, oh, God, look at all this place. Like, people have left, yeah, plastic, tin cans, all kind of, oh, no one's going to tidy up unless we do. Okay. You know, so we're like, we're, we've only lived in cities for if we're massively generous, you know, uh, what Chattel Hewitt uh, Anatolia is like, um, I like this is 10,000 years old, but really it's in the Industrial Revolution. What's that like 150 years, something of this order? Like, this is we're, we're, this is a new story for us. The fact that you and I are having a real time conversation by the great global brain that we've thrown across the planet, however imperfectly and however problematic it might be, that's a big deal. So, I like to think that we're at a stage where. And, and I think the, 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 the story with psychedelics is an important part of this. We're at a stage where there is a critical juncture in, in history. And it's that, the, and the pandemic is a brilliant example of this. Like it's about how do we figure out kind of collective communal action in this this world that we know is intimately interconnected, right? Like we've seen this with like trade and the, the, the story of the pandemic with regard to disease. Like there's, there's, you can't just go and be, you know, no, like, like John Dunn says, no man is an island. That's absolutely evident now. That's absolutely evident, you know, really, really clear. And not only is no man an island uh, or no person, but we're also kind of joined with this kind of communal understanding of what's going on with uh, in relation to things like, um, you know, changes with um, reduction of species and habitat and climate change and blah, blah, blah. The pandemic also demonstrates, again, however imperfectly, that we can take collective action quite fast, actually, when we want to. You know, I remember a few years ago when it turned out that chlorofluorocarbons were drilling a hole in the ozone layer over the poles. And it was like, whoa, this is a real thing. And again, we didn't totally fix the problem. But what we did do as a, as a whole community is we massively reduced the amount that we were using and we sealed the hole in the ozone layer. Phew, what a relief. Great. So I think that this whole relationship between like the individual kind of goes back to what we were starting talking about towards the beginning of the conversation, this relationship between the individual and the collective, that's where, that's always where the work is. You know, people talk about the great work of magic or the work of, work of self-transformation. All of that work, really, the stuff that really matters in my experience is in that interface between the, the individual and the collective, between me and the people that I love, between me and my family, between me and the species I share the biosphere with, you know? So we have to we have to really um, we have to try and I, I guess uh, really be thoughtful about the great opportunities that the work with say medicine provides us. You know, here here we are fifty years ago saying here's here's a medicine which appears to help people problem solve and to heal, and then we had this kind of hiatus of fifty years, and now finally we're getting to a stage where we're starting to work with these things 
in a much more thoughtful, much more intelligent kind of a way. Um, is there a symbiosis between these things? Yeah, yeah, I reckon there is. And, and it and it's, goes back to that idea that when you're floundering around in a complex world, some dude comes up to you and says, oh, no problem, Jason, here's my answer. Here's the simple answer. And it's just written on these two pieces of paper or in this sacred book. Or, you just take this, my friend, and everything's going to be fine. I think increasingly lots of people are suspicious of that. They want to have their own personal journey and experience with themselves and their affinity group. They want to find their own kind of way. And that's in community with others because we don't do this on our own. And they are less happy to just accept what was okay for the generations prior to them. And I think by and large, that's a good thing. You know, um, we need to pay respect to our elders and to the teachings and the philosophies and ideas that we've had from those people. And we need to cult we need to, to stay in the tradition. And that means cultivating the fire, not worshiping the ash, you know? So, um, yeah, this is where the work is. And is it an important and critical time? My friend, it's always an important and critical time every moment, every moment. And, you know, I, I pray, I enchant for the fact that this will work out well, you know, I've got children. And I hope that they will grow up in a world where a lot of the discussions that we have about, you know, um, the things that even the register that we speak in will seem crazy to them because they will have like a, a very different. And I hope very much a much more kind of integrated and playful and curious and uh, rich way of being than the ways that in which we found ourselves over the course of the last, like, I don't know, few hundred years, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, you know? Um, if you look at something like the history of Britain, one of the things that you see that happens in the Victorian age is the emergence of a figure in literature called the god Pan, you know, the great god Pan. So you have him in uh, Wind in the Willows, you know, the little animals go and meet the great god Pan, and he appears in the horror stories of Arthur Mackin, and he appears a lot in, like, Victorian iconography. Why? The reason for that is that everyone is leaving the rural environment, and they're living in, now in the cities. You know, people, people go to the cities, and they're, they're having to work in the, in the mills, and they're having to work in the factories and all this kind of stuff, and they have this, this, this sense of loss of, the, of Arcadia, of the countryside, of the landscape, and, and Pan is the god who, who kind of rules that kind of stuff. And so it becomes really big in Victorian literature. So we can look at what it is we, what is it that our heart feels that we need, you know? What is it that is our longing? And our longing, particularly at this time of the pandemic, is a longing for this connection. You know, and the medicines are one way of doing this. Conversations like this are one way of doing this. You know, that's where we need to put the effort in, is to remake and refine and rediscover those connections between us. So, OK, there's people that I know who have, uh, let's call it very different views from me as far as, you know, the story of the pandemic, let's say, or whether or not vaccination is a good plan. And I, I accept that those people come from a different storyline. But if I immediately say, well, you're just crazy, nothing to do with me. Of course, there's still the, we're on the same planet, man. We've got to have some language to figure this out. We've got to have some kind of respectful spaces in which we can have conversations which are not so prickly and so aggressive that people just leave in the first few moments tearful. You know, that's the kind of stuff we need to work on. 
That's the kind of stuff we need to work on. And one of the best ways of doing that is to all have a big party together. <laughs> so going right back to what you said at the beginning, man, you know, we get together now that this is becoming more and more for many people a possibility and we let go of our body armor and we let go of our, the face that we have to save because we're social creatures and we have moments of, ex of ecstasy and laughter and tears and we dance together. That's what we should be doing next. Yeah. That's my suggestion anyway. <laughs> there's, there's a gentleman who I, 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 I work with and I, I have a lot of respect for him. He, he comes from uh, this, this group of people called the Tubu and the, the Colombian Amazon. And they, they, they have a real reverence for, for the power of the word and the story. And, and before they work with any plant, there's always the telling of the story. And, and I think there's a real power in that. Um, one of the interesting stories they have is, is they have this tale, they, they call it the Diroa Masa, and it, it's the, the children of the new dawn. And it, they interestingly, you know, according to him, his elders kind of predicted the demise of, of, of his group of people. And, and they said, <clears throat> it's actually because we, we forgot our stories. We forgot to continue to tell our stories. And, and eventually when you forget and you don't practice that remembrance, that eventually things fall apart. And <clears throat> the idea of the Dirdo Amasan is, is eventually these people. And it's very interesting because they describe them as these like lighter skinned people, tall with green eyes who come and they're kind of in a way the bridge keepers they they don't necessarily have a story of their own but they're able to draw the medicine from the four directions and to create this new maloka which is like not only their house not only their ceremonial space but it's also symbolic a symbology of the world as a whole is the maloka and so creating this new world this new earth by by drawing on all of these traditions which i think is very beautiful um, and that seems to me like something you're, you're very much doing. And it's always this interesting balance because, you know, as you were kind of saying and alluding to, it's, I, I'm also here in the Sacred Valley of Peru where there's a lot of medicine practitioners. And it's always this very fine balance because we can take that story, you know, as, as, a, as a, you know, like a white European or American man, and we can be like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, 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 that's me, you know, and, and I can just practice all this medicine and, and, you know, and it can very much feed the ego in a way. And, and I see that a lot of people who just kind of take these medicines and they start practicing. They don't remember the story. They, they don't remember where it came from, what the essence of it was. And, even one of the groups of people I work with is Shipibo. Their, their name for ayahuasca is uni. And, and the way it would usually translate is this idea of wisdom, um, very much like in Greece, like gnosis. You know, it's, it's very different from like knowledge that we read in a book. It's, 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 it's something that comes from within. So, and that's something I see, you know, even just talking to you is you really seem to embody that, that wisdom or, or even just thinking about these things, you know, uh, taking into account where things come from and the stories behind them. How would you describe the work you're doing, like in the shamanic realm? Because it does seem you're drawing on these different traditions and trying to find the, the truths and the essences. And how does that manifest for you in this time and place of you know, bringing these sometimes esoteric or occult indigenous traditions and somehow trying to bring them together 
and and give them to someone because that's also something as you said is very important you know the the curandero the shaman he doesn't live in the middle of the woods like he has to be a part of community if he's not then he has no purpose he's not serving medicine he's not giving back and and helping people and so that i think is also such a fundamental part of what it means to be a a healer or a shaman is we have to emerge in the world. I mean, maybe we have to go off into isolation for 10 years, but we have to come back and infuse that. So what is what is that journey like for you? Like, what does that look like? When What does that mean for you to, to be a, I mean, I don't know if you call yourself a shamanic practitioner. I know all these things, all these words, they, they begin to lose their meaning. But for you, what does that look like, that, that journey of beginning to share these things? I guess... Because I, people sometimes ask me, they sometimes ask me in a very sort of, you know, they say, oh, uh, uh, what medicine, of, what, what's your medicine? And I say, oh, it's the magpie. It's the magpie medicine. Because I have to just pick the beautiful things that I see around me and fashion something for myself because I don't have a lineage and I don't have that kind of cultural story to come from. And that's a that's a risk as well because people can go off and they can they can go to you know Iquitos or Mapia or wherever and they can take their ayahuasca and and they have no there's no other kind of points of reference you know they've just had like um, I don't know um, Quetzalcoatl has just told them that they are the second coming for example and uh, they have no there's no one to say hang on do you think that's really is that helpful um, there's no one to kind of like. You know, there's no, there's, it's, it's difficult for those people to kind of come back and to kind of make sense of their journey in terms of their own cultural story. So I guess for me, the work that I do, I see it as about as far as I'm able to empower people to do this for themselves. So I come from a kind of background of uh, a, the late 20th century style of magic called chaos magic, which is very kind of DIY, very discordian, very kind of pr about, about practice, about like it's you can read as many books as you like and you can listen to as many gurus as you want until such time as you actually start doing a thing. You're not going to learn very much. You know, you have to actually to, to practice. You have to do this stuff. So for me, it's a lot about kind of um, providing resources and support and texts and i hope being an exemplar of saying what matters really is to do do this work and that doesn't just mean take the drugs it means to to involve be involved in your practice of like whether it's like body work you know mindfulness meditation you know entheogenic practice work within your local community like you've, you've got to do stuff there's got to be like a and and, and the technique is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in saying to people, this is what I know, this is what I've learned. I learned this stuff from the Native American people. They have this um, technique of holding the ritual where we build a, a crescent moon altar. And whether we do that in a teepee or whether we do that, uh, you know, uh, in a room, because that's where we have to work and we, we you know, we we use the elements, but, but we should do this, you know, we should do this. We, Yes, of course, we should reach out for practitioners. We should reach out for skills and knowledge and so on. But fundamentally, what it comes down to is the is um, saying to people, you are empowered to start this work yourself and that this work does not just end with taking the magical medicine, whatever it happens to be. It's much broader than that. You have to be able to take the altered state and turn it into an altered trait in terms of your behavior and in terms of your way of being in the world. So my work is to try and provide, to, to try and be a kind of a, a transmitter of the stuff that 
beautiful people, great teachers have taught me, and to be able to kind of lay that out to people in a way that they find accessible and uh, that they feel that they can do, that they and their affinity group can do. You know, like one of the things in getting higher, right at the beginning actually, is actually part of a conversation I had with my eldest son. So he said to me, what's the problem with this whole acid thing and like psilocybin? Like, why why is it illegal? So we had this kind of whole conversation about it. And I said, well, one of the one of the issues here is that you can uh, be in the woodland and you can go, hey, look at all the little faces in the trees. Or you can be in the woodland and go, look at all the faces in the trees. And the difference between the two things is how you're feeling and who you're with. Basically, that's the difference. And he kind of went, oh, right, yeah, get it. So part of what I wrote in Getting Higher was an attempt at saying to people like my eldest son, you're going to get hold of this stuff, yeah? Whether it's like being presented to you by some guy with a hat or not a hat or whether you're buying it off the dark net or whatever, you can get hold of this stuff. And you also know that this stuff is capable of amazing, powerful personal transformations and insight and healing and uh, problem solving and all kinds of beautiful things. So you need to know how you might structure the space so that you can see the beautiful phases in the trees and you can delight in that rather than be frightened of it. And you need to know where you would go to get advice and resource and so on. So it's about empowering people. This is the work that I try and do, is about empowering people to find their way yeah, to, to know which, you know, to, for me to say, well, look, I found, I don't know, Irrawid, Irrawid.org, right? Like every psychonaut should, should spend a good amount of time, like checking out and ideally putting some money towards Irrawid. Irrawid has been running since the, at least the 90s, if not earlier. You know, this amazing database that's very, very useful for kind of healthcare professionals through to kind of psychonauts. It's like, boom, I can tell you this is where I recommend that you look. And I can also tell you that if you are going to do uh, psilocybin and you want to do this primarily for an inner world healing experience, as opposed to having a beautiful time with your friends wandering around the forest, here are some things you might want to think about. You might want to think about this and this and this and this in terms of setting up the space. So my job is to kind of give people the technique as far as I can and say, build this for yourself. Yeah, I come from this tradition that's like, you know, punk, DIY, 1980s culture before clubland people had to make their own do do raves themselves you know there wasn't this infrastructure for this so it's like this is the tech buddha says do meditation so let's do meditation let's not worry what buddha says let's apart from the fact that he gives us the technique he may say all kinds of things in some of his early texts at least some of the early things ascribed to his teaching he says oh if you're a woman you just need to wait till you're reincarnated as a man then it will be fine like that's not cool and that's nonsense in my view. And if I had a chat with a guy, I would want to firstly check out whether he'd actually said that stuff. And if it was, I would take issue with it. But the important point is he says, here is my technique. My technique is called meditation. It comes from the Hindu tradition. It looks like this. Here's the technique. Take this. Find out what you can do with it for the benefit of yourself and all other beings. That's it. Yeah. Do you do you have if someone is listening to this what are what are maybe just a few things that come to mind uh, of 
I mean, because it seems like also what you're talking about is like this idea of set and setting. Are there are there a few like just things that maybe pop out on on how to really create that space? And again, not recommending that anyone you know goes off and and does these things and inherently, but if they are, like, what do you think are some of the fundamental things that can really help to 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 shape that? Because you know, even as we were talking about <clears throat> these these ancient traditions, these these rituals, these ceremonies that set and setting was vital. I mean, there was so much effort put into creating a container, a, a space, a, an ideology, a story that really set the base to allow people to go very deeply into these processes. And yet a lot of those have been lost. And and, and I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with those. So is there anything that comes to mind that, that, that you feel is really important? There's so there's so much. Um, I remember going and being part of a um, in 2019. Uh, I was part of a psilocybin trial, um, which was towards the trial that eventually was for people with treatment resistant depression in London. And um, I remember going into the hospital ward where we were going to be given the psilocybin, and the team who were running the show absolutely beautiful perfect like i spoke to the person who was going to be sitting for me they they came we had a one-on-one -on -one and they said is it okay if i touch you on the arm and i said yeah that's completely cool brilliant the ward in the hospital they closed all the blinds they put on little kind of you know led style candles because they couldn't have real candles but they had the light level really low they had an atomizer with some uh, i think it was like sandalwood kind of thing they had some beautiful books of plants by the side of the bed you could look at they had obviously the music so you could listen or you could have the music ambient they put beautiful rugs down on the floor to soften people's footsteps so it was all like being in this comfortable environment and so that's it. We want to make a, we fundamentally, we want to make us, if we're going to do these things, which can become like near death experiences, we want it to feel safe and reassuring by and large. That's one of the kind of critical things that we want. We want it to be physically safe, mostly. Um, I say mostly because there's always, you know, weird stuff can happen. Things can go out of control or whatever. We can never predict exactly what's going to happen, but we want to, a container that's safe we need to be thoughtful about what stuff people are bringing into that experience um and they need to feel reassured essentially i mean i do work you know where where i'm in settings where i'm able to do this i do work with like sitting for people and i say to them like i'm not going to do any of the healing i'm not like the healer like you do the healing i'm just the dude who passes you a glass of water gives you a blanket and says you're doing really well it's going to be over in three hours or whatever yeah that's all that's all i do right um so my role is to be reassurance is to be it's okay let go relax breathe into the process it's that kind of thing and however we set that up for ourselves for our peer group for our wider community we need to create these safe spaces man this is what we should be doing in culture generally irrespective of when we're just like you know uh, high on psychedelics this is what we should we should we should aim to do to create a cultural setting where it feels it feels safe you know like there are many problems with it but here in the british isles we have a national health service which means that in principle um at the point of delivery if i get knocked over by a car the ambulance comes it picks me up it takes me to a hospital it's all kind of sort i it gives me a sense of safety it gives me a sense of security it gives me a sense that the however imperfect it might be and there are problems that my culture has decided 
that people in need of medical treatment should just get that. Yeah, it should just happen. And we can figure out the money later on, you know. Um, and that's helpful, I would suggest, in the same way that when we go into the psychedelic state and psychedelic spaces, we need to have a sense that we are we are reassured that all is well in that space and that the people who are facilitating or whether it's a peer group session or whatever, but there's, there's a good level of knowledge and understanding in that space as well. You know, so we need to think about the set. We think about the setting, but we also think about the skill. We think about what skills are necessary to work with whichever medicine we're working with. We work, of course, of course, we think about the substance, what are we using? Is it safe? Is it at the right dosage? How, how has this person used it before? What are the contraindications with other medications? And we think about the settling. We think about the, how do we come out of this? How do we program what happens next? Because that's just going to be as important because any idiot can take a big load of drugs. Whether or not you can take those experiences and turn that into something meaningful, that's where the real work starts, you know? Take a massive load of DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin, loads of pictures, loads of stuff happening. That's great. How does that affect your relationship with your parents, with your children, with your co-workers, with the people with whom you have difficulties? You know, that's where the work is, really. The medicine is an ally to help you in that work, I would suggest. So, yeah, I mean, short answer to a massively long question. I should really at this point say, buy my book. It might help. I mean, I don't know. There's loads of good stuff out there. There's loads of good resources out there, you know. Um, uh, there's a number of kind of texts which are about, like, how we might make these spaces. Um, and people, by and large, do it pretty well. You know, we hear, we hear where there's trouble, where there's trauma, where there's problems, where people, you know, get it wrong. But considering the fact that much of this is done under conditions where the substances are uh, illicit or at least in a kind of a slightly gray area within the culture, you know, considering we do this often under very difficult circumstances, by and large, people do it pretty well, I would say. Um, so, yeah, we just need to and, and learn from each other, you know. If you go to a good ceremony, you see what the p people are doing, you kind of clock what they're doing. You kind of, right, okay, now I know this. I don't pass their work off as my own, but when I go into the next ceremony, I say, ah, do you know what? I was in a thing with this other guy and they did this thing and it was really helpful. Maybe we should do this thing as well. Or at least I've got it in my proverbial back pocket if I need to you know, do a piece of work. I remember hanging out with um, yeah, various kind of people, but um, the Native American church used this, where, uh, and, where lots of shamanic traditions use this where you have like a uh i've got one up here like a like a fan of some description right incredibly helpful because it's a way of touching people without touching them so if someone's struggling someone's in a difficult space just doing something like this very gently give them a sense that things are moving on things are moving on they might have their eyes closed but they'll still feel the movement of the air you know so this very useful piece of technology a lovely friend of mine from south america gave me this one you know, and I use it and, and, and I've observed that, seen what people do, chatted to them about it and gone, okay, so I understand now. So if I'm sitting for somebody and they feel that they're, bit, they're kind of locked in and I can see what's going on, sometimes just, and of course I've got like my own visualizations and there's all the energetic stuff, whatever, we don't need to talk about that. But the very fact that they feel the air moving away from them, moving over them, and maybe there's other kind of more spiritual stuff that happens as well. I don't know. But this handy piece of technology, 
you know? So I've learned from those people and I give respect to them. And I, you know, I thank my friend who brought me these feathers. So yeah, that's what we do. Well, Julia, I know we're coming up uh, on our time. Um, I guess the last question I have is, is where do you, where do you see all of this moving as, uh, as a culture, as a society, you know, as we talked about earlier, it does seem this word is often used like this Renaissance. Where do you see, not even necessarily just plant work, but, but obviously plant work too, but it seems like there's something deeper happening. This this real remembering of who we are, where we come from, a real interest in that, a, an interest in healing and connecting of, of of remembering these these ancient traditions, which really seem to be at the root of who we are and what so many ancient cultures were were trying to elicit and to point towards. Do you have a sense of where where this is moving, with the the direction that we're headed in? I mean, Jason, I'm 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 mostly an optimist about these things. Just to kind of bracket what I'm going to say, so I think that I think the possibilities are are, are amazing. I think that. Um, Although we've had the hiatus of the war on drugs, or more accurately, the war on some people who take some drugs, we are getting to the stage now where we can see that psychedelic medicines in their various forms and many of the questions, technologies and ideas that are associated with them. So not just the drugs themselves, but the whole kind of cultural space. So there's a lot of kind of benefit in that for wider culture and that that's 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 happening now you know the trial that i was on in 2019 uh uh within i think it was only like six months they started having people who had treatment resistant depression so people who were really suffering into this trial and within the next few years this will be a treatment in britain anyway available on the national health service so it doesn't matter if i've got money or not yeah if my doctor recommends me to the trial to the treatment i might have to wait for a while but i'll eventually i'll get it you know so we've moved from a stage of not even knowing that the mushrooms were psychedelic where we lived being reminded of that by by maria sabina to the point where we're now starting to deploy these for people who are not going to go to take ayahuasca in peru who are not going to go and take ecstasy on the dance floor who are not and those are the people who need the healing man those are the people often who find themselves taking refuge in perhaps, you know, nationalism or kind of ideologies or problematic behaviors or addictions or whatever, you know, when uh, Rick Doblin um, and the the team at MAPS started working with uh, veterans uh, in the US, there was a lot of kind of people very uncertain about this, you know, why, why are we working with the military industrial complex trying to kind of support these people, blah, blah, blah. And Rick's sort of view on this uh, uh, seems to be, you know, having chatted to him and read his stuff and so on, is that you go to the belly of the beast, you go into the heart of the darkness, you go into the difficult place, you know, that's where the treasure lies. And so that, that I think, is going to be the next thing. What's going to happen next is with the, with the whole psychedelic renaissance, we're going to get a situation where a whole bunch of people who would not go anywhere near this stuff, who don't have long hair and don't hang out in Peru, this is a whole other group of people, a whole other demographic who are going to start to experience this. And it's experience. It's like you were saying, it's about gnosis. It's about this primary experience. They're going to tap this stuff in. They're going to connect with this stuff. And then culture really will change. How it changes, I like to think it will be for the better. We'll see. We'll see. I like to think the medicines will be good allies in our transformation. Yeah, beautiful. 
Well, Julian, thank you so much. Is there anything um, that we didn't touch on that you'd like to address before we before we end? No, man, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there. Just to say thank you very much again, Jason. Really appreciate the opportunity, man. Really, really good. Lovely speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. It's beautiful speaking to you. You have a beautiful presence, a beautiful way of communicating, and, and I think a, a lot of knowledge and wisdom. And I, I hope... Uh, I hope and trust people really get a lot out of it. If um, if people are interested in in connecting with you or learning more or, or your work, where can they go about uh, finding that? So the easiest place these days is there's a website which is just Julian Vane. That's V A Y N E dot com, and they'll find links there to all kinds of stuff that I do. Um, I guess one of the major things is I've just been working with um, uh, the Fungi Academy, so I've been working with them to create a, a psychedelic journey work course um which i have to say looks amazing the videography that they've done on it is just like like i played some of it to my teenage children expecting them to go yeah yeah whatever dad's thing whatever and that both of them were like this is pretty good which is high praise from people who are 15 and 18 uh so so yeah the fungi academy stuff you can get, there's links to that through through my my uh, website and there's kind of books and you know other things that, that i produce but that's probably the easiest place to kind of direct people to and then you can yeah i'm always up for kind of you know nice conversations with nice people i'm on instagram and facebook and rah, rah, rah. so yeah julianvane.com yeah. beautiful i'll put a link to, to to that in the show notes and and thank you so much again i mean i i there, there's so much more I, i'd love to talk to you about so maybe we'll do a round two at some point and uh thank you so much for for what you do and sharing and i i really wish you the best and uh hopefully one of these days we're, we're able to connect some more let's do that let's do that thanks jason really appreciate yeah. it man. great thank you all right, everybody, that is it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I find Julian a really fascinating guy to talk to. I, I feel like there's a whole lot of other things we could get into, so uh, maybe we'll have him back on a future episode. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help. Um, I have a little bit of mambe in my mouth, so sorry if I keep uh, uh, salivating or trying to, to, to shift it around. Um, but if you're able to help, Patreon is a really uh, big help. It's a subscription service. There'll be a link in the show notes for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up and it gives you some really nice uh, added benefits. Things like early access to all of these shows, bonus material, Q&As. It's a really big help to me. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. And if you are able to do that, thank you very much in advance. Um, there's also the ability of uh, directly donating via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, going on the Universe Within podcast uh, homepage on the YouTube channel, subscribing to the show, um, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos, that's a really big help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience, to, to have it kind of pop up more in people's feeds. Um, and then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts and also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's also a really big help. So to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. And if you are able to do that, thank you very much. Um, I'm shooting this episode a bit far in advance, so I'm not exactly sure of the following guests. Uh, but as always, I'll continue to bring on people who I find really fascinating and, and uh, continue to hopefully have really uh, deep and, and enlightening conversations. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for all the support, and I will see you all on the next one. 
Oh, mm-hmm.